trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, I welcome you to the show. Thank you for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Every Tuesday, I have the privilege to connect up with my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com. And Eric, great to, to connect with you once again. How are things in your world today? Well, I'm hugging my propane fireplace because there's more threat to me personally of the weather outside than of the woo flu. It's, I think it's probably about 16 degrees with a really brutal, blustery wind going on. So I'm staying indoors today by choice, not because the Gesundheit Führer has ordered me to. Are, are, is, uh, is your part of Virginia getting hammered with that huge winter storm that was hitting much of the East Coast? Oh, yeah. We got about half a foot of snow, which wasn't the worst of it. That's not any big deal. But the, the temperatures have plummeted, and the wind is really hard up here. I'm on, a, I'm on a ridge. I'm actually only about two miles from the Blue Ridge Parkway. So we get a lot of temperature inversions and, and these pretty gusty wind, wind tsunamis that hit you, and just they will suck the life right out of you if you're outside. Well, let's uh, let's talk about uh, some of the the things going on here. That uh, I, I think I think first of all, anybody who who doubted you and said, "Eric, you're overreacting to the idea of you know masking and where it's likely to head," mm-hmm. um, I thought of you a lot this last week as uh, as the uh, double mask mandates started yeah. coming out. Tell me your take on this. It sounds like just public transportation or any kind of mass transportation is where this is is being enforced. But um, I think you called this correctly. Well, yeah, uh, theater of the absurd. Uh, I guess about a week or so ago, you began to see more people wearing uh, not one but two of the holy face codpiece, including uh, head Gesundheitsführer Pope Fauci the 18th, um, along with a number of politicians, including Mitt Romney. And there was even talk on the mainstream media news sites uh, about how important it is to wear two for even more protection. But I think that pushed it just a bit too far in the direction of, of obvious, inarguable idiocy. So they've dialed that back. So now Pope Fauci has reversed himself and issued a new papal bull saying that, no, only one facial codpiece uh, is necessary, not two or three. Well, I, I got to tell you, I shared this with my listeners yesterday. Over the weekend, um, I traveled to a neighboring state to visit family, and while there, uh, met with my cousin at a diner. And it's you know not a not a franchise, mm-hmm. but just a little little diner along the side of the road. That's the first place I have been in months, though, where there were signs on the door that said, "If you are if you're experiencing any symptoms, please do not come in here." But mm-hmm. I walked in there; there was not a mask in sight, as in no one was wearing a mask. And I mean, it's, this place wasn't packed to the gills, but, but it was definitely busy. I mean, there were dozens of people in there, no one wearing masks, and it felt so good to just have that, that moment say, of normalcy. That moment of normalcy, that refresher course and what it used to be like to live in a sane and relatively free country. It's really nice, isn't it? It was good. And unfortunately, though, for, for the, the powers that be, it really fueled my resolve <laughs> to, yeah. not, to not mask up, you know, at any point i i just i see us being pushed further and further into a corner i mean now you know the they have the rectal swab test for for yeah. covid and it's like 
this has Can to you be, imagine that? It's a cruel they, joke. They literally want people to bend over. I mean, literally. Yeah, it's I. I don't know how this this is be this would be that much different, you know, from your your um, entry into prison, you know, inspection, you know. It's, it's well, sure. T- if you remember at the beginning of all of this, they had the tape lines everywhere, and uh, all of this the uh, the social distancing kabuki. And as a journalist, I think you and I talked about this many months ago. I, I've had the occasion to go into uh, booking facilities and jails and so on. And I was struck by how almost identical the layout was to what I'd seen in jails and prisons, where, you know, the prisoners are told you have to stand here on this, this piece of tape where the X is, and you only walk on this aisle, and so on and so forth. And it, it occurred to me what they're doing is habituating the ordinary American to being treated like a prisoner. No, very true. It's, well, it's, it's the hallmark of authoritarianism. And you won't find a more authoritarian place than, than prison, you know, with the ubiquitous right. cameras and directions and rules. And note, too, that the terminology is the same. When you uh, heard that term lockdown previously, before all of this insanity began, you, you understood that that was in the context of a prison. They were locking down the prisoners because there was a riot or something right. inside the prison. That was not a term that was applied to civilian life. And now it is, and people have gotten used to the idea of being under a lockdown, just as if they were inside a prison, which in a, in a real sense, they, they are. Well, and I, I don't know how to explain this without it sounding pretty clumsy, but it seems like in the larger population centers, the herd mentality reigns. And, and that's why, yeah. you know, where I live along Utah's Wasatch Front, there are an awful lot of people. And I see yep. probably 95% uh, compliance with masks when I'm out and about. I see people driving down the road wearing masks in their cars. Mm-hmm. It was, just re- it was just refreshing to go into a more rural setting and see people who were very much about the business of living life, not recklessly, but just, you know, they were, they were choosing whether or not to mask up, and their choice was no. Well, I do think that there, you'll find generally more of an individualistic perspective the farther away from the cities that you go, just by the nature of people who tend to live farther away from urban areas. They tend to be people who are more independent, more self-reliant, and I think by dint of that, probably a little bit more questioning of what they hear, whereas people who live in very, uh, very population-dense areas are probably hyper-socialized, and it's harder to stick out when everybody around you is doing what everybody else is doing, so it creates kind of a feedback loop. And, of course, in any urban area, there's more government. Government is everywhere, and it's inescapable. When you live in a very rural area, you might not see a cop, for example, for months at a time. Whereas if you live in an urban area, there's a cop at every corner, and so it's a little bit more threatening to uh, disregard any of the edicts, rules, and mandates, and so forth that the government spews out. No, with, without a doubt. And, and, and this makes me long for, you know, a more rural uh, location to live. <laughs> like, really. But, oh, but, my gosh. You know, it was, in, it was largely inadvertent. I can't take credit for this because, obviously, it goes back a while. But when I moved away from the D.C. Beltway area back in 2003, uh, I did the best thing I've ever done in my life, and I thank the motor gods that I did that and that I now live in a rural area, and I've got 16 acres of land, and I, I can't see my neighbors, and uh, there's nearly a face diaper in sight out here. Yeah, it's... And, and, and I look at the, the transportation aspect of this, too. And, and yeah, you need mass transit probably more in, a, in a, uh, an yep. urban setting. But I think about some of the warnings that you have been sounding for some time about how, you know, uh, 
transportation is, is one of those levers of control. And, sure. and the, the more we get forced into, uh, well, you can't have this kind of car anymore and you can't have that kind of car anymore, uh, that, that is impinging on people's um, autonomy. And so, you oh, know, greatly. something you can work this, on, something that's reliable, uh, probably not a bad idea to have. No, not at all. And, and to get back to what we began the conversation with, this latest federal fatwa that was decreed by executive order of the president-select Biden um, makes it very difficult for people who are dependent on some form of government transportation to earn a living. You know, so yeah. let's say you have to ride the subway or take a bus or some such thing in order to work or if your job requires you to travel by air and so on. Now you face this really difficult Hobson's choice of taking a stand for principle and sanity and saying, you know, I'm not going to participate in this kabuki, or lose your job. You know, and that's, that's, the, that's the lever that they're pulling to, to, to exercise the control over us that they want. Very clever. They're not passing laws. What they're doing is saying, if you want to be able to do X, well, then you have to do Y in order to be permitted to do X. Yeah. Well, and, and this is going to, as, as you have also warned, apply to getting the vaccine. And we're starting to see the pressure ramping up for making people, you know, toe the line. Well, if you want to fly, if you want to go to another country, you're going to have to have this vaccine. Yeah, I'm hoping that that's going to be a bridge too far for a lot of people. And I see much more pushback on the vaccine than I've seen initially on the facial codpiece thing. And there are a number of interesting aspects to this, including that the uh, the vaccine is what they call experimental, meaning in, in an ordinary context, it would be something that you might try, you might avail yourself of it if you had a terminal illness and every other uh, medical procedure had failed you and you had nothing left to lose anymore, literally. So, okay, I'm going to just take the risk because I'm, I'm going to die anyway, so I might as well try this experimental treatment. Um, but with, in the context of a vaccine, it's an entirely different thing. They cannot force you to take an experimental vaccine under current law. So this opens up the possibility of a number of legal challenges, both to laws and to corporate policies that try to pressure people to submit to taking an experimental vaccine. Okay, we've got to break away here in just a moment, but my guest is Eric Peters from epautos.com. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, a recent article that Eric posted uh, about uh, how death is being redefined in the age of COVID. This is going to be, uh, you know, of particular interest for those of you who are wondering, you know, uh, are we seeing this massive spike in deaths, you know, because of coronavirus or, you know, what, what happened to the flu? What happened to, you know, other common causes of death? We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from EP Autos is my guest. That's epautos.com, by the way. Visit his website. You're going to find a lot of great reading. And, Eric, I noticed you, you just had a new article. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think it published this morning, actually. It did, just a couple hours ago, actually. And it pivots off of an article that's been published on UncoverDC.com that was written by uh, Celia Farber, uh, who's a really excellent investigative journalist. And she did an interview with um, a guy named um, James DeMeo, who crunched some numbers, CDC numbers, um, for the past, for 2020, and found out something really interesting. And it is that if you subtract 
the number of asserted deaths that are due to uh, the Wu flu from the total number of deaths, you wind up with a, a lesser number uh, going than, than the total number of deaths in the United States going all the way back to 2014. So something is really fishy. Uh, it's a fascinating article, and you dig into it and find out that essentially what they're doing is redefining death, and a lot of people are already well aware of this. Somebody who's 99 years old and dies, and then they attribute that to not old age, but to corona. They have essentially somehow miraculously cured the flu. Nobody's dying of the flu anymore all of a sudden, as contrasted with prior years. Uh, they're essentially lumping every person who dies into this category of a corona death in order to create this idea that there's mass death going on because of the Wu flu, and it's just not so. And I, I strongly urge people listening to this to check out, not, go to my article because the link is in it, and you can click on that, and you can read this article, which has all kinds of meaty math and statistics in it that paints a better picture than I can here on the radio. Okay, and I will have a link to that also in my show notes, which my listeners can access at thebrianhydeshow.com. But I, this is of great interest to me. Now, I, look, I've got a really good friend who is, uh, is in the insurance business. And so uh, numbers, you know, actuarial tables and whatnot, this is stuff mm -hmm. he understands very, very well. And while he's, he's not, uh, you know, pushing for more authoritarian lockdowns, he also is very careful not to dismiss, you know, the numbers that the CDC has put out. Mm -hmm. He has sent me a couple of different CDC studies that I've, I've looked at. I'm not a statistician. And, and frankly, mm -hmm. after a few minutes of checking the numbers, I'm like, okay, I'm not even sure what I'm looking at. So, mm -hmm. I, But I do know this. Statistics can be manipulated. And sure. given the power that is at stake here, um, I have to be at least a little bit suspicious that, that someone might want to, uh, you know, shade the numbers in, in favor of what, what their agenda would be. Well, here's what we know, and this is incontrovertible, and which is almost never mentioned by the major media organs, uh, by Fauci or any of these other people who I think are minimally, minimally, grotesquely negligent in not explaining this to people. And uh, what it is is that the majority of people who are actually dying are very elderly people, um, people who have uh, exceeded the average lifespan of, of a typical American in this country, which I think is 78 or 80, something like that, and who also have two serious chronic underlying health problems. Something like two-thirds of the people who supposedly have died as a result of the Wu flu are people who had pretty significant underlying health problems. And again, that's not to trivialize anybody's death, but it's disingenuous to portray this as something that is a threat to the rest of the population that is not elderly and that does not have chronic serious underlying problems. That needs to be explained to people, and if people understood that, a lot of this hysteria would go away and it begs the question, why aren't they doing it? And the answer seems to be that they need to maintain the hysteria. Well, and, and my, my friend had, had cautioned me also about, he says, look, you know, I don't want to see people minimize, you know, actual deaths or, or to, to basically minimize the people who did die of COVID. And, and, and I guess there's, there's a fine line between, look, a, being yep. a COVID denier and, and simply trying to keep the numbers straight and prevent other people from fudging numbers, you know, to advance their own agenda. Um, well, I'm, and not to, lose, not to lose track of just the, the natural processes of life. A couple of weeks ago, the baseball legend Hank Aaron died. Uh, he was 87 years old, I think. And whether he died of corona or because of the vaccine that he took, the bottom line is he died of old age. And a year ago, if an 87-year-old man died, people would say, you know, that's sad. It sucks. But he was 87. I mean, it was understood that at a certain point in all of our lives, the end comes of our lives. 
Now it's this kind of weird undertow that somehow it's abnormal for people who are in their mid, late 80s, 90s, even 100 years old when they die, that somehow that that is abnormal as opposed to just a sad aspect of ordinary routine living. No, that's that's a good point. I'm disturbed by the number of people who, if they hear that someone has been, uh, you know, received a positive uh, coronavirus test, they view that as, as somehow you failed. Somehow mm-hmm. you were irresponsible or you were reckless. But it's, it's crazy the blame game that gets played when someone contracts a virus, as if, as if viruses, you know, you know, obey the laws or obey the rules. Well, sure, and it bears repeating that a positive case or a positive test result in no way means you're even going to develop symptoms. All it means is that there are some trace antibodies or, or, or fractions of a virus, pieces of a virus in your system that somehow were detected by this test. It does not mean you're going to get sick, and it certainly does not mean you're going to die. And that, again, is something that the general media does not explain to people. What they do is have these lurid, dramatic, over-the-top, hysterical announcements about the cases. 5,000 new cases were found today. And, of course, people are terrified because they have been conditioned to equate the case, the case, with an almost certain death sentence. And that's outrageous because it's just absolutely not true. Yeah, well, and, and even the imagery that much of the media has been using throughout the pandemic, you know, the, the counter this many cases, this many deaths. It's in blood red, you know, crisis. And sure. It's, it's like it, there's, there's, a, there's a very big psychological lever being used against us, you know, that, that may not be warranted. It may not, is not. Uh, just to break it down a little bit, um, one of the, I think, gro- most grotesque aspects of this is what's being done to school-age kids who stand almost no chance of dying from the coronavirus. However, they stand a very good chance statistically and proportionally of dying from suicide caused by depression, uh, which is off the charts right now, more so than it has been in any previous year, because these kids are going out of their minds. They have been terrorized. They have been browbeaten. Their lives have been shut down. And from their point of view, it never ends. You know, you and I have the perspective of, well, this is just a year or two years, and we can look back and we can look forward. When you're 8 or 9 years old or 10 or 11 years old, it's really hard to think down the road, you know, well, maybe two or three years from now, everything will be fine. For them, this is like the new normal, as the, as the saying goes, and it's crippling them. It's crippling them psychologically, and it's pushing a lot of them over the edge, and it's absolutely loathsome and despicable. Well, we've got, we've got about two minutes left here, Eric. Let's talk some of the, the best practices that uh, freedom-minded individuals can embrace to, to maintain not only their freedom but also their sanity in a world that seems to be uh, losing its grip on reality? Well, first of all, and I know this is tough. It's tough for me, too. Try not to get depressed. Try to keep your cool. Try to uh, look around you at your own life and realize, hey, you know, it's actually pretty normal if you turn off the TV and turn off the radio and stop listening to all of this hysterical fear porn that's being uh, thrown in your direction. And focus on your friends, your families, your neighbors, and do the things that are within your control to make your life better. And I will suggest as well that to the extent you can do it reasonably, um, be, be passive-aggressive toward these sickness psychosis decrees. And don't put on the diaper unless you absolutely have to in order to live, in order to get food. Uh, and at least make them tell you to put it on. Uh, these little acts of resistance collectively wind up becoming um, a, a, a movement of resistance. And if we can just get enough momentum going, I, I continue to believe and I hope that we can dial this back. No, I, I'm with you. and it's But it takes courage to do this. And you, you've got to be willing to, uh, to live with a bit of discomfort and knowing that you're risking disapproval in order to, to 
you know, uphold your, your standards and your principles. No question. But keep in mind, too, that a little bit of social discomfort, um, a little bit of that stuff uh, is extremely worth putting up with versus what we're going to have to put up with if this is not dialed back. Yeah. It, it, silence will be taken as acceptance or as, uh, you know, Absolutely. as consent. Okay, Eric, we are up against the clock here, but thank you so much once again uh, for, for joining me and for being the voice of reason. Tell folks where they can find your uh, website. Sure, it's epautos.com, and I encourage them to check out this piece I have about uh, Celia Farber and James DeMeo if they're interested in breaking down the numbers about the Wu flu. Very good. I look forward to our conversation next week. Thanks, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also by Monticello College. I have links to these sponsors in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. All right, uh, you know, it's it's probably, I have this vested interest. Maybe nobody else cares about this, but I care deeply about the idea that that uh, we need voices of dissent. And yeah, I know it's self-serving. Well, Brian, you happen to be a voice of dissent. And it's true. It's true. Where necessary, sometimes I've had to speak up and dissent. And, and I... I don't want to be known as, yeah, he was the dissenter, always, everything, didn't matter what it was. Somebody wanted pepperoni on the pizza, Brian would dissent. Nope, we want sausage. But for some things, people need to be willing to speak up. And this has been true historically. And, and, you know, I probably don't need to tell you this, but it's never an easy thing. And I mean, especially when when you're standing up for what's right, not just what's expedient. I mean, we've seen this uh, throughout history where dissenting voices, you know, were burned at the stake or otherwise, you know, hounded or, you know, imprisoned for, for doing something. But I don't think I've ever seen a time here in America where we have had more risk or growing risk about being accused of thought crime or treason. And especially this year. I mean, it's, it is just such a surreal thing. Um, I, I know people all over the political spectrum. It's not just, you know, people who are on the, the more conservative side of the spectrum that are like, wow, what, what happened here? Look at the, the permanent uh, fence being built around Washington, D.C., armed soldiers standing guard around the nation's capital. If we could just persuade those guys to turn around and, and face the other way so that uh, they're keeping everybody within that fence in there. I don't know, maybe a few guard towers also, you know, intent on keeping them in there. Maybe some guard dogs, I don't know. Basically, we should we should make uh, Washington, D.C. a big 10-mile square prison <laughs> and keep the troublemakers who are already in there in there. All right, that's a radical idea, but it's, it's just, you know, for a nation that still prides itself on we are the freest, you know, most democratic, no, we're not. And I don't say that to hurt your feelings or you know, to, to tear down your your love of your country. It's just that the reality is becoming a lot harder to uh, to avoid. 
I mean, and, and, and to revel in wrong think, to, to pursue the truth, no matter what the official, you know, narrative is telling you to pursue, it's not getting easier. In fact, the definitions of treason and thought crime are rapidly being expanded to include just about any dissenting voice. James Bovard, in uh, an article published on the Daily Caller, warns about this. And, you know, I mean, he's, he's saying, look, in Joe Biden's America, treason and thought crime are easier than ever. And you have to understand, James Bovard is not a partisan, you know, commentator. This guy's as, as pretty much down the middle of the road, um, principled. You know, he's, he's all about free market economics. He's about limited government. He, he understands these things at a level most politicians certainly don't. So this isn't just, you know, a screed against, well, Biden, we hate everything Biden. This is more like a really honest assessment of here's what the president is doing and here's where it's posing risk. So for what it's worth, I want to share some excerpts of this. Um, this, this is not to incite fear or anger or otherwise, you know, get you concerned that, you know, the knock on the door is coming to your house in the dead of night. But we are definitely moving in a direction where historically societies that have gone in that direction have found themselves in a truly ugly place from which they did not easily extricate themselves. He says, President Joe, this is James Bovard writing, President Joe Biden is supplementing his calls for national unity with fervent denunciations of extremists, insurrectionists, and domestic terrorists, as well as comparing Senate opponents to Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels. Oops, I think I mispronounced his name. Nonetheless, Biden is now in charge of the world's largest law firm, says James Bovard, the U.S. Justice Department, as well as armies of federal enforcement agents. Biden and his Democratic allies have the tools to assure a steady stream of denunciations and indictments in the coming years against Americans targeted for their political beliefs. Now, Democrats are already vastly expanding the only crime defined by the Constitution, treason. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi declared that Republicans who signaled they would not ratify the Electoral College results earlier this month gave aid and comfort to protesters with the idea that they were embracing a lie that the election did not have legitimacy. End quote. Gee, I wonder why anybody would get that impression. As law professor Jonathan Turley noted, Pelosi's use of the treason language in the Constitution suggests that Republican members were more than just politically at fault. They were traitors. A court of law would never re- never convict Republican members of treason, but Pelosi can convict them in the court of public opinion thanks to the hanging judges at CNN and MSNBC. Opposing Biden becomes the equivalent of opposing democracy and fuels demands for expelling more than 100 Republicans from Congress. After the clash at the Capitol on January 6th, President-elect Joe Biden declared that the actions of the rioters borders on sedition. Actually, Republican members of the Congress who objected to the Electoral College verdict were being denounced as the sedition caucus even before January 6th. Federal Prosecutor Michael Sherwin, who's handling the January 6th cases, says he has given other federal lawyers marching orders to build seditious and conspiracy charges against the most abusive rioters. Now, the federal seditious conspiracy statute declares that if two or more persons conspire to oppose by force the authority of the U.S. government or by force 
to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States. They shall each be fined under this title and imprisoned for not more than 20 years or both. Now, the point here is this is a sweeping legal drift net that could spur 20-year prison sentences for anyone who helped the dude who proudly carried off Nancy Pelosi's lectern. Bovard says many members of Congress want all of the 800 protesters harshly punished for their desecrating of the temple of democracy, their hallowed halls, and their sacred space, even though most of those present committed no violence and left peacefully of their own accord after a few hours. He says there are ample federal laws to vigorously prosecute and harshly punish the people who violently attacked Capitol Police. But blanket charges of sedition against protesters who were merely guilty of unlawful entry would mean scourging them as if they were political heretics. And he says while it's unclear how many protesters will be charged with sedition, reliance on that legal penalty blew up prior administrations. Maybe you remember the Sedition Act of 1798, how it briefly helped President John Adams persecute newspaper editors who criticized his policies. But those outrageous prosecutions helped Thomas Jefferson defeat Adams in the 1800 election. In 1918, the Wilson administration responded to rising criticism of the U.S. role in World War I with a Sedition Act that made virtually any criticism of the government or the war a criminal offense, as noted by historian Arthur Eckerch. Government propaganda fanned intolerance and torrents of informants. Congress repealed that Sedition Act at the end of 1920, but the other Sedition Act provisions remain in place. On Inauguration Day, former CIA Chief John Brennan declared on MSNBC that Biden team members are now moving in laser-like fashion to try to uncover as much as they can about what looks very similar to insurgency movements, an unholy alliance frequently of religious extremists, authoritarians, fascists, bigots, racists, nativists, even libertarians. That part got interesting. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Bovard says Americans who hold ideas that politicians associate with any of those groups could be in the crosshairs. Americans who hold ideas, rather, that, these, that politicians associate with any of the groups that, uh, that Brennan mentioned could find themselves in the crosshairs of federal investigators in the coming years, according to Brennan's warning. Beyond tradition, or beyond treason rather, and sedition, more than 4,000 federal criminal laws provide ample opportunities to hammer potential or actual government opponents. Will Biden's denunciation of protesters as domestic suspects spur a democratic stamp or a bureaucratic stampede to round up the usual suspects? That was a really interesting Freudian slip, by the way. Uh, prosecutors will find a ready tool in the Patriot Act's provision that defined domestic terrorism as violent or threatening private actions intended to influence the, in, the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion. Now, I've got to break away here. We'll come back and finish up a couple more thoughts here. I'll, I'll have a link to this article from James Bovard in the show notes. But in the meantime, if you are someone who, you know, prides yourself on, on look, I'm going to stand firm on principle and I will speak up when I feel it necessary, I think you should do so. And I intend to do so myself. But we also need to be very aware the risks of doing so are increasing. And that doesn't mean you should think twice and, you know, never do it. But the times we live in have uh, shifted to the point where standing up for things like limited governments, you know, and personal freedom, 
that's going to be seen as uh, rebellious. So prepare yourself accordingly. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I was sharing an article from James Bovard, and you'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Maybe it's because I had a first-hand look at uh, what happened to the Bundy family when they stood up to a federal agency. And look, not everybody within that, that federal agency was rogue or out of control, but as, as the facts came out, and thanks to a whistleblower within the Bureau of Land Management, it became very apparent in the course of the, the trials of the, the Bundy family and many of their supporters that there was, uh, there was definitely trouble and it originated from a particular rogue agent, Dan Love. And thanks to a whistleblower who cataloged that uh, one, of his, uh, one of his fellow agents was behaving in a highly unprofessional and likely illegal fashion, there's a reason why Clive and Bundy and his boys and, and others who were with them are free individuals today. I guess what I'm saying is I've seen firsthand how justice can be twisted to only serve the interests of the state. And so when I hear this warning that, hey, uh, treason and thought crime, you know, are, are becoming a priority. And you think about the federal apparatus being weaponized against basically half the country that does not fall in line with, with the, the ideology that drives uh, Joe Biden and, and his supporters. I mean, we're, we're headed for a collision. I'm sorry. I wish, I wish there were a nice way to say it. I wish there was some way to, to soften that blow. But it's coming. And you need to know about that. Power-hungry presidents, says James Bovard, have perennially portrayed their critics as public nuisances. But this is a step further. He says the Biden administration seems hell-bent on doing far more than finger-wagging. Perhaps the feds will overreach and finally awaken more Americans to the peril of letting their rulers judge their thoughts. In the meantime, prudent dissidents and wily cynics will avoid writing anything in an email they don't want to hear read out loud in federal court. That's probably the most sobering sentence I have read in a long time, but I think it's also true. You know, chest beating might feel good, you know, blowing off some steam online, but uh, it could actually come back to bite you and bite you hard. Let's take a moment here and talk about libertarian terrorists. Uh, Ron Paul had a response to that uh, inclusion of, of uh, libertarians in uh, John Brennan's uh, rant on uh, Inauguration Day. But it wasn't just the rant. As Ron Paul points out, the Department of Homeland Security issued a nationwide terror alert last week that lasts until April 30th. Now, this alert warns of potential terrorist attacks from Americans who are ideologically motivated and have objections to the exercise of government authority and the presidential transition, as well as other perceived grievances fueled by false narratives. Ron Paul says the language used in this alert suggests that millions of Americans are potential terrorists, Second Amendment supporting anti-war, anti-tax, anti-politics, anti-militarization, pro-life, and anti-Federal Reserve activists certainly have objections to the exercise of government authority. 
And he says they are certainly viewed by the political class and its handmaidens in big tech and mainstream media as ideological extremists. Anyone who gets his news from sources other than mainstream media or big tech or who uses certain unapproved social media platforms is considered to have had his grievances fueled by false narratives. I'm sure they would say that what I'm doing right now, what you're hearing from me, is a false narrative. But he says for something to be considered a false narrative, it need only contradict the official narrative. Ron Paul says the domestic terrorist alert is the latest sign that activities on January 6th on Capitol Hill, like the attacks on September 11th, 2001, are being used to advance a long-standing anti-liberty agenda. Legislation expanding the federal government's authority to use its surveillance and other unconstitutional powers against domestic terrorists is likely to soon be considered by Congress. And just as the Patriot Act was written years before 2001, this legislation was written long before January 6th. The bill's proponents are simply taking advantage of the hysteria following the so-called insurrection to push the bill onto the congressional agenda. He reminds us former CIA Director John Brennan recently singled out libertarians as among the people the government should go after. Now, this is not the first time libertarians have been smeared. In 2009, a federally funded fusion center identified people who supported his presidential campaign, Ron Paul's campaign, his campaign for liberty, or certain libertarian and constitution party candidates as potentially violent extremists. The idea that libertarianism creates terrorists is absurd. Libertarians support the non-aggression principle, so they reject using force to advance their political goals. They rely instead on peaceful persuasion. Libertarianism, he says, is being attacked because it does not support just reforming a few government policies. Instead, it presents a formidable intellectual challenge to the entire welfare warfare state. The ultimate goal of those pushing for a crackdown on domestic terrorism is to make people unwilling or even consider to even consider radical ideas. To make people so afraid of certain ideas, they refuse to even give those ideas a fair hearing. He says progressives who are tempted to support what is being promoted as a crackdown on right-wing violence should consider the history of government harassment of progressive movements and leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. What do they think a future right-wing authoritarian would do if given power to go after ideological extremists? Ron Paul says all Americans who cherish the Bill of Rights should come together to stop this latest crackdown on liberty. He says his campaign for liberty will be mobilizing Americans to stop passage of any domestic terrorism legislation, while my Institute for Peace and Prosperity, he writes, and his Liberty Report will provide America's Americans with the most up-to-date information about the continuing attempts to smear those who speak the truth about government lies. I can't believe this guy is in his 80s and still just absolutely leading the charge. As a, as a champion of liberty. But there he is. And it's going to be, it is going to be a sad day when, when Ron Paul is no longer with us to, uh, to keep people focused on the real prize. It's not about power. It's not about uh, being able to control and punish your political enemies. But sadly, that's how a lot of people see government. And, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to point a finger here. I have a lot of really, really dear Republican friends but that's kind of the mindset they want to bring to the table, too. Well, if we don't have that power, somebody else will, and it's all about you got to have the power. If you don't have the power, you got nothing. 
So it's not just a matter of, well, you know, we've got to resist the lies and these power-hungry opportunists, you know, on the left side of the spectrum. There, there are statists on the right as well. But like Ron Paul was talking about here, you know, it's, it's the idea of relying on peaceful persuasion rather than force to advance your goals. And I still maintain, you know, I, I could be wrong here. And, and I'm fully willing to you know, accept the possibility. There may be something I'm not seeing. But I think we're past the point where if we just, you know, do our politicking a little bit smarter or we vote harder or we vote smarter, you know, that we're going to be able to fix this. I don't think that's the case. I mean, you have the system quickly, you know, aligning itself in such a way that anything that falls outside of what it considers acceptable is going to be criminalized. I mean, if you thought the social justice warriors were strict with their, you know, you will use this pronoun and you will, you know, you will use these terms and never use these terms and think in these terms and do as you're told. I think we're about to see this, uh, you know, translated into a lot of other areas of our lives. And it's very understandable that people are going to be hesitant to draw any attention to themselves. And I don't think we need to be out, you know, marching around, carrying placards. We certainly don't need to be going out and burning our neighborhoods down or, you know, uh, assaulting people who don't agree with us. That's how real fascists work. You know, the ones who are supposedly fighting fascism. But I don't think we can afford to be silent either. And, And this leaves some pretty interesting possibilities. How do you have influence? I submit that one of the greatest powers of influence that we tend to overlook is the simple power of example. And I'm talking about not, not so much, you know, you're going to go make a speech before Congress and it's going to, you know, wow everybody and persuade them to come to your side. I think it's going to be something a little bit simpler. It's going to be people who notice that no matter what is going on, no matter how, uh, how deep the drama happens to be in Washington, D.C. at any moment, there's a steadiness about you And there's a calmness about the way that you live your life and a determination to live your life according to your conscience, your choices, and not someone else's bureaucratic dictates. Once they see that it can be done, others will catch on to it. Example is a very, very powerful persuader. So don't be surprised when you draw other people into your gravitational pull simply by choosing to live as a free person. This is The Brian Hyde Show.